Welcome to the Flood Church Sermon Podcast, where we bring you sermons from our teaching team at Flood Church, Lilongwe, Malawi. For more information, you can go to floodchurch.com. Thanks, guys. Uh, so we're in a series at the moment that is called Out of the Ruins, where we're looking through the book of Nehemiah. And Nehemiah led the rebuilding of the wall of Jerusalem. So we're looking at uh, the areas of our lives and our world that might be in ruins, and how God wants to rebuild them. The bottom line of this series is lives built by God for God. Okay? Uh, So if you were here the last few weeks, a couple of weeks ago, Humphreys gave us an in-depth history of Jerusalem. He talked about the people of Jerusalem being exiled, and then the people of Jerusalem returning under the leadership of Zerubbabel, where they rebuilt the temple, and then under the leadership of Ezra, who brought a spiritual and a social renewal, and then we met Nehemiah, who hears that the wall of the city is in ruins, is devastated, and decides to lead a rebuilding. If you were here last week, uh, you would have heard Renata speak about how Nehemiah went about uh, uh, scouting the area developing a plan for the rebuilding. She talked about how he made for a careful inspection, a concerned estimation, and a critical mobilization. But now we reach chapter three of the book of Nehemiah. In this chapter, I'm gonna give you this as like a warning, okay? In this chapter, Nehemiah's name is not mentioned. Instead, there are more than 30 other names listed along with what those people contributed to the building. It's a very practical chapter. Any of you who are in the NGO world might find this sounding familiar to the acknowledgements part of a report. You know, that page at the end that seems to go on for a long time. And as I first read this, I thought, really, Humphreys, do we have to cover this? Can't we skip it and just, you know, move straight to chapter four? But as I've dwelled on it this week, I've realized there are important lessons we have to learn from this chapter, and this is God's holy word. So I'm gonna pray for us now, and then I'm gonna invite you to stand once I'm finished praying and we're gonna read the chapter, okay? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that we can be here today. That we can dwell with each other. That we can dwell in your presence. That we can receive your holy word and that you will speak to us, God. I pray that this word would speak to us today. We bless your name. Amen. Cool. Can you stand with me to read? This is Nehemiah chapter 3. Eliashib, the high priest, and his fellow priests went to work and rebuilt the sheep gate. They dedicated it and set its doors in place building as far as the Tower of the Hundred, which they dedicated, and as far as the Tower of Hananel. The men of Jericho built the adjoining section, and Zakur, son of Imri, built next to them. The fish gate was rebuilt by the sons of Hesena. They laid its beams and put its doors and bolts and bars in place. Merimoth, son of Uriah, the son of Hakoz, repaired the next section. And next to him, Meshullam, son of Berechiah, son of Meshizabel, made repairs. And next to him, Zadok, son of Banar, also made repairs. 
The next section was repaired by the men of Tekoa, but the nobles would not put their shoulders to the work under their supervisors. Then the Jeshanana gate was repaired by Joada, son of Pasea, and Mashalam, son of Besodea. They laid its beams and put its doors with their bolts and bars in place. Next to them, repairs were made by men from Gibeon and Mizpah. Melatea of Gibeon and Jaden of Merinoth, places under the authority of the governor of Trans-Euphrates. Uziel, son of Hahariah, one of the goldsmiths, repaired the next section. And Hananiah, one of the perfume makers, made repairs next to that. They restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Rephaiah, son of Hur, ruler of the half-district of Jerusalem, repaired the next section. Adjoining this, Jedidiah, son of Harumph, made repairs opposite his house, and Hattush, son of Hashabaniah, made repairs next to him. Malchijah, son of Harim, and Hasab, son of Pahath, Moab, repaired another section of the tower of the ovens. We're almost halfway, guys. You're doing okay? <clears throat> Shalom, son of Halohesh, ruler of the half-district of Jerusalem, repaired the next section with the help of his daughters. The valley gate was repaired by Hanun and the residents of Zenoah. They rebuilt it and put its doors in place with their bolts and bars in place. They also repaired 1,000 cubits of the wall as far as the Dung Gate. The Dung Gate was repaired by Micaja, son of Rechab, ruler of the district of Beth Hakerem. He rebuilt it and put its doors with their bolts and bars in place. The Fountain Gate was repaired by Shalun, son of Kol Hose, ruler of the district of Mizpah. He rebuilt it, roofing it over, putting its doors and bolts and bars in place. He also repaired the pool of Siloam by the king's garden as far as the steps going down from the city of David. Beyond him, Nehemiah, son of Azbuk, ruler of the half-district of Bethzer, made the repairs up to the point opposite the tombs of David as far as the artificial pool and the house of the heroes. Next to him, the repairs were made by the Levites under Rehem, son of Bani. Beside him, Hashabiah, ruler of the district of Kela, carried out repairs for his district. And next to him, the repairs were made by their fellow Levites under Binuai, son of Henadad, ruler of the other half of the district of Kela. Next to him, Ezer, son of Jeshua, ruler of Mizpah, repaired another section from a point facing the ascent to the armory as far as the angle of the wall. Next to him, Baruch, son of Zabai, zealously repaired another section from the angle to the entrance of the house of Eliashib, the high priest. Next to him, Merimoth, son of Uriah, the son of Hakoz, repaired another section from the entrance of Eliashib's house to the end of it. The repairs next to him were made by the priests from the surrounding region, and beyond them, Benjamin and Hashub made repairs in front of their house. Next to them, Azariah, son of Masaiah, son of Ananiah, made repairs beside his house. And next to him, Binuai, son of Henadad, repaired another section from Azariah's house to the angle and the corner. And Palal, son of Uzai, walked, worked opposite the angle and the tower projecting from the upper palace near the court of the guard. Next to him, Pedadiah, son of Parosh, and the temple servants living on the hill of Ophel, made repairs up to a point opposite the water gate towards the east and the projecting tower. Next to them, the men of Tekoa repaired another section from the great projecting tower to the wall of Ophel. 
Above the horse gate, the priest made repairs, each in front of his own house. And next to them, Zadok, son of Immer, made repairs opposite his house. Next to them, Shemaiah, son of Shechaniah, the guard of the east gate, made repairs. Next to him, Hananiah, son of Shelemiah, and Hanun, the sixth son of Zalaph, repaired another section. And next to them, Meshalam, son of Berechiah, made repairs opposite his living quarter. Next to him, Malchijah, one of the goldsmiths, made repairs as far as the house of the temple of servants and the merchants, opposite the inspection gate, and as far as the room above the corner. And between the room above the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and merchants made repairs. And this is the word of the Lord. You may take your seat. Thank you. <laughs> so that's a lot of new names for us. Uh, so Humphreys and I aren't huge movie people. But one series of movies that we have watched and followed are the 22 films that fit into the cinematic universe of Marvel. I think lots of you will have known, maybe if you don't know, these are the movies like Iron Man, Spider-Man, what else fits in there? Thor fits in there and then they all come together to form the Avengers. Uh, so we have watched a good number, not all of them, but a good number of these movies. And the most popular movie, which is currently the highest grossing film of all time, is the movie Avengers Endgame. Humphreys and I in May travelled to our sister church in Flood, San Diego, and we have a picture. We got to go see this movie in the cinema. <coughs> or maybe we don't. It's, it's fine. Uh, there it is. So there's us seeing Avengers Endgame. Now, if you haven't yet seen it, don't worry. I'm not going to spoil it. Uh, what I want to point out is one unique thing about all of the films that fit into the cinematic Marvel universe is that they have what's called a post-credit scene. So what this means is at the end of all of the rolling credits, at the end of the film, there's a scene that lasts up to one minute. And what that scene is, is either a teaser or a clue about another story or the next story that fits within the Marvel Universe. So Black Panther, that's another one I didn't list that fits in this universe, might have at the, clue, at the end had a clue about Thor or another movie. They all fit together. So we, knowing this, went to see this movie. It lasts for more than three hours. If you haven't watched it yet, prepare. At the end of those three hours, we committed to stay. To let you know, the credits on Avengers Endgame roll for 13 minutes. In those 13 minutes, 2,718 names pass the screen. Uh, this movie is, has the biggest cast and crew that a movie has ever had. It's a lot of names. So we sat there for our 13 minutes so that we could see our post-credit clip. Uh, it's one of the few times with these movies that I've ever watched the credits of a movie. I don't know, maybe it's something you love to do. Maybe when you finish a movie you think, you know what I need? I need 13 minutes of names scrolling through the scene. Uh, that's not for me. <laughs> but some ways, as I was reading this chapter, it reminded me of sitting there for 13 minutes, watching the names scroll over the scene, over the screen. But it also made me think, I remember sitting there 
and realizing that there are usually, in this film, there's probably 2,700 names that you have never thought about their contribution to this movie. But I don't know if you've ever watched any behind the scenes footage from these types of movies. Generally, it's people wearing ridiculous costumes, standing in front of green screens, looking kind of stupid, to be honest. And I suspect if we only had that footage, you wouldn't watch that for three hours and come out and be like, that was worth my $10. You would say that's three hours of ridiculous footage. But by the time that footage is touched by those 2,000 people, by the time the special effects are added, by the time the sound is added, by the time it's polished, by the time it's cut, it creates this incredible, fantastic, three-hour entertaining feature film. Which also then made me wonder, thank you, uh, as I watched it, at about the eight-minute mark, when the 1,500th name was on the screen, I started wondering, what would it be like if I met that guy? Maybe he's the fifth name on the computer engineer graphics designer list. What would it be like if I met him? And I said to him, hi, what do you do? And I was actually wondering about it, and I suspect what he would say in answer to the question of what do you do is actually not that different to if you met the actor of Iron Man or the producer of the films. I suspect he would look at me and he would say, I make cinematic universe Marvel movies and I contributed to making the highest grossing movie of all time. Because he would view himself as part of that. He would know that he made a contribution and that his contribution is important and he would find value and joy in that. And as I thought about those 2,700 names on the screen and how many of them might feel that sense of uh, contribution of being a part of making the highest grossing film of all times, it made me realize that in an eternal sense, in a far more valuable sense, we have the opportunity to take a role in something that is much bigger than ourselves. It's also much bigger than the highest grossing film of all times. It's also much realer than a universe that's based on comics. We have the opportunity to be a part of the story that God is telling, where he is taking the ruins of our sinful, broken world, and he is redeeming them to a perfect, eternal existence. He is, this is the ultimate story of the real universe. And now, if you have kids, you might have noticed our kids are in a 36-week series at the moment that's called His Story or history, and what that is looking at is how every piece in history, in the Bible, is pointing to this ultimate story. It's pointing to this ultimate hero. It's pointing to the fact that we fit in that story, and that story is of God redeeming our world. Uh, but also, as I started reading more about the book of Nehemiah, I discovered it's actually much easier for us to want to focus on the main character. And the main character in this book is Nehemiah. It's named after him. It would probably be easier or tempting for me to want to look at him and just draw leadership lessons from him. But I actually think these more than 30 names who contributed to putting the bolts and bars in place teach us a lot about the importance of service and contribution. 
because despite, and look, I'm a millennial, I'm there with you, despite what our selfies tell us, despite what our profile pages and our bios like to tell us, we are not the main characters of the story. Jesus is the main character of the story of our world. And that's not to say that we all have a sphere or a place in this world where we do lead. And it's also not to say that every single person, every one of you and every person on earth is not of such incredible value that God loves you so uniquely. But it's to say that Jesus is the leader of the great story of this universe where he is taking what is broken, what is in ruins, and he is rebuilding it to perfection. Uh, so Jesus is taking our personal ruins, maybe broken relationships we have, or addiction or sin patterns we're in, and he is healing them. Jesus is taking the ruins that might be in our families or our workplaces or our communities, and he is rebuilding them. Jesus is taking the ruins that might be our social systems, our governance, our corrupt organization, poverty, inequality, and he is rebuilding it. And Jesus is even taking the ruins of our environment, the places that are deforested or polluted or broken, and he is rebuilding it into an eternal, perfect environment. And he has invited us to be part of that rebuilding. And he has given us promises. The incredible thing we have is a leader who has already brought it to completion. He has finished it on the cross. He has fulfilled his own word, yet we are invited to be in that rebuilding. So what I actually want to talk about today are six lessons that I think we learned from this chapter about how the people of Jerusalem served in the rebuilding of the ruins under Nehemiah's leadership. So that how they contributed to this project of rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem as Nehemiah directed them, and how we can be servants under our ultimate leader, who is Jesus, who is rebuilding the ruins of our lives and of our world. Uh, so here we go. Let's go for it. Lesson one for serving is to understand the vision and the mission. So if we go back to what Renata read last week in uh, chapter 2, verse 17, Nehemiah went to the people and he said, come, let us rebuild the walls. Then it says, I told them about the gracious hand of God on me and what the king had said to me. So he's gone to the people and he said, this is the vision and mission. The vision is to have a city with walls again. And I think uh, I was reading more this week to understand the importance of a city with walls because I don't really get it. Humphreys and I put up a fence at our house the other day, but it's just a fence. But in those days, a city without a wall wasn't seen as a city. If it wasn't protected, it couldn't really be a city. But more than that, for a nation to be seen as a nation, it needed to have a walled city. It needed to have a heart. It needed to have a protected heart. Nehemiah was wanting to do more than just build something nice. He was wanting to restore the nation by the rebuilding of Jerusalem's walls. So he made clear and the people understood this vision and mission. 
Jesus has clearly told us his vision and mission as well. I think the vision God has is laid out pretty nicely in Revelation 21. Let me read it. Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, nor mourning, nor crying, nor pain for the old order of things has passed away. God paints an incredible vision of a world where there is no more pain, where he himself dwells in our midst. But he doesn't stop there. He gives a mission as well. And the mission is in Matthew 28 where he said, Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So he has said that we are to go. We are to declare that kingdom that is coming regardless. So my first challenge for you this week is to dwell on the vision and mission of God. Because if we don't know the vision and mission, we cannot serve well. My second lesson for serving is to step into action. Uh, the, the very beginning of that passage, which now feels like watching 13 minutes of credits ago, hey? I read, Eliashib rose up. And what we know there is that he didn't wait for Nehemiah to do a ribbon-cutting ceremony. He didn't wait for his first paycheck to come in. He didn't wait until he was given the hard official launch of the building of the wall, it says he rose up. He stepped into action. He knew what needed to be done and he started. Then once he started, the others followed. And my challenge for you today is that God has already given you the invitation to serve. God has already set the vision and mission. It is our time now to step into action. So my challenge for you is to don't not wait until you're invited into a position of prestige, or maybe until you're given a title, a position with a title. Begin serving where you are now. So step into a team. Talk to somebody new. Give of your time or your skills or your resources. And I promise you, if you begin looking for opportunities to serve, you will find them and you will be able to step into action. My third lesson is to contribute your portion. You might have noticed that 21 times I read the words next to him in that passage. And what that outlines for us is that there was no person of all of those names. Nobody built the whole wall. Nobody did all of the work. But each person contributed a portion of the wall. And actually, a lot of them, it says, it built in front of their own house or the portion that was next to their neighbor. It says that they built just a small contribution, basically. And it's the same for us. This is one thing I've personally struggled with for a long time. I often see the ruins that might be in my life or around me, and I think I have to fix it all. Then I can be overwhelmed with a sense of how do I fix a problem? How do I fix ruins? of this side, how do I single-handedly build a wall this big? But Humphreys is actually often reminding me we need to do our portion. We don't need to do it all. And so my challenge for you today 
is that Jesus will be the one who brings his vision to fulfillment. You don't need to do it all. It doesn't say that we as his servants will wipe out all pain and suffering. It says that he will do it, but that we can do our portion. So my challenge is to look for your portion. How is your neighbor struggling? What's going on in your own house? What's happening in your workplace? What's happening with the people you see every day? My challenge is to look in front of your house for where you can build and serve. My fourth lesson is to get your hands dirty. In serving, you must get your hands dirty, unfortunately. If we read verse 5 again, I want to read it from the message this time. It says, except for the nobles who wouldn't work with their master and refused to get their hands dirty with such work. And what you may notice is that the nobles are not named in this list. They are not accredited with contributing, with making any contribution. The other thing you can notice, even as you read it, but the more you look into these names I learned this week, they are are from incredibly different backgrounds and social standings. Some of them were common laborers and some of them were experts in different fields as perfume makers, as professionals. They were not all from the same class or from the same social group, yet all of those names mentioned got their hands dirty and contributed to the building of the wall. And actually, the book of Philippians chapter 2 lines out how Jesus is not only our perfect example of being a great leader and being our ultimate visionary leader, but talks about how Jesus is our perfect example of service as well. Philippians 2.8 says that Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And I would challenge you to think of a way that you could get your hands dirtier than dying a death on a cross. I think Jesus is our example. Jesus has set the bar high for how far we should be willing to get our hands dirty in serving him. So my challenge for you this week in service is to think of a task you find yourself avoiding. Maybe a task you think is below you. A task you prefer to get other people to do. And take up that task this week. Take up that task with a spirit of servanthood. And I promise you will find joy in doing it. Uh, My fifth lesson for serving is to serve humbly. Even though I just read all of those names, I'm guessing you probably don't really remember any of the specific names along with their contribution because I think the list is written for us to not want to credit or recognize any individual. There's no point in that story where it talks about Binuai carving his name on the wall. It doesn't ever mention that somebody got their name in neon lights to hang over the city of Jerusalem. So it suggests to us that they all did this in humility. They did it to make their own contribution. And again, for us, the book of Philippians outlines how Jesus is our perfect example of humble service. Philippians 2.7 says that Jesus, who in being very nature God, 
did not consider equality with God to be something for you to be used for his own advantage, but instead he made himself nothing. If Jesus, who, was the, who is the creator and the God of the universe, could humble himself to make himself nothing, then we have been challenged to serve humbly. And in this, my challenge for you this week is to serve in a place or in a way where you will not receive any acknowledgement or recognition. Do a task that will most likely never be accredited by anybody to your name, but do it anyway. And do it to serve Jesus humbly. And finally, my last lesson in serving is to serve zealously. And I really liked this. Verse 20 says that Baruch, the son of Zabai, and he's about the 20th name in this list, it says that he zealously repaired his portion of the wall. And kind of how I picture him, I think, is like Edith. Like he's running out to the wall. He's yay-yaying. He can't wait to get to work on his wall. He's so excited about his piece. Uh, But also it says more than six times throughout this chapter that they put the bars and bolts in place. Uh, Now, I'm part of a growth group. If you're not part of a growth group, please connect and get part of one. And we have somebody in our growth group who is in the field of construction. And we were debating in our growth group. Anybody who's in a growth group will understand how you get into these kind of debates this week about how the whole wall burnt down and whether the bars and bolts were made of wood or metal. Now, he outlined to us that in those days, most likely bars and bolts were made of wood, but a heavy wood. Uh, Those bars and bolts would have taken effort. They would have required carving and fitting. They would have been heavy. They would have had to be tailor-made for each door and for each gate. And the fact that it mentions over and over that they fitted the bars and bolts in place suggests to us that they didn't just do the work as quickly and to get it done without worrying about the detail, without worrying about doing it well. It suggests that they did it to the best of their ability. They served zealously in their rebuilding. And Romans 12.11 gives us the same command. It says to never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor in serving the Lord. But this got me wondering this week, can a person really serve zealously and never be lacking in zeal? Can we really maintain passion and fervor and not ever lose that in our service? It actually, to be honest, made me wonder last weekend at Salt, I came at 5 a.m. to set up breakfast and we made 200 cups of tea. And I'll be honest, by the 150th cup of tea, I don't know that I was zealous anymore. And it made me wonder, what about the days when we're tired? What about the days when we've done that task the thousandth time over and nobody has ever noticed us do that task? What about the days we wonder, does my service actually make a difference? Do I contribute to anything? But then that took me back to thinking about the credits of that rolling film. And I think the source of us maintaining zealous service has to be from knowing what we contribute to. I I suspect that that guy who maybe spent hundreds of hours doing digital editing on the film 
was able to maintain it because he was passionate, but also because he knew that he would one day say he was part of the team that made the biggest movie of all time. But so much more for us. Can we have that motivation that we are participating in the work of God rebuilding the ruins of our world to an eternal glory, to an eternal city, to a place where weeping and tears will be gone, to a place where we will no longer need the sun because the glory of God's presence will be enough. So my challenge for you is that next time you're doing dishes or picking up rubbish or buying food for your neighbor or driving somebody to shop right, you need to think, I'm not just serving. I am serving the eternal, glorious work of the rebuilding of my world as I do this task. I am serving God as he brings heaven to earth. Uh, so I have a challenge uh, response thing that I would love us to do together today. So in the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about how the church is like a body and it has many parts, but it is one body. And I was talking about this with my friend Chennai yesterday and she said, I don't know about you, but I like and use every part of my body and wouldn't really like to lose any of it. And I was like, yeah, I know, I agree with that. And Paul talks about how there's no part of the body that's without value. There's no part that's without use. And the whole doesn't work without all of the parts. And that is true for us. That is the nature of God's church. And that is the nature of God's kingdom. It requires us. It requests us. It implores us to serve, to make a contribution, to take a role, to do our portion in the rebuilding of the ruins of this world. Thanks for listening to the Flood Church Sermon Podcast. Please send us your feedback by commenting below or by emailing floodlilongwe at gmail.com.